Star Trek Enterprise was the sixth Star Trek series and the first prequel, taking place a mere 150 years in the future, and concerning the adventures of the first starship to be named Enterprise and its role in the shaping of Starfleet and the Federation. Upon its announcement in 2001, I was quite excited by Enterprise. I tired of the fifth Trek series Voyager pretty quickly, latching onto neither the premise, the characters, or the actors inhabiting them. Nobody on Voyager, with the notable exception of Robert Picardo as the ship's doctor, seemed to have any charisma or character, with some, looking at you Robert Beltran, being so wooden as to be purchased at Ikea. Enterprise seemed to be a step in the right direction, despite going backwards. My imagination went into overdrive as I envisioned a show that followed the adventures of Captain Robert April and then Captain Christopher Pike on the original Enterprise NCC-1701. Characters would come and go for the five years, including replacing the captain midway through, an idea I found really intriguing. In my head, I had the five years planned, which included a final episode that concluded with all the characters from the original 1964 pilot, The Cage, at their places on the bridge, ready for the adventures that would lead them to where we first saw them. I did have some trepidation about recasting some of the roles, but other than Spock, it's not like any of the other characters became icons like Captain Kirk or Bones, so I doubted most of the audience would even care. Sadly, these hopes were dashed almost immediately. Producers Bran and Braga and Rick Berman immediately nixed a regular role for T'Pau, who'd appeared in the original series episode of Mock Time. Not for any creative reason, but because it was pointed out to them that Theodore Sturgeon, writer of the aforementioned episode, would be paid a tidy sum for using his character. This, Braga and Berman felt, would be money better placed in their pockets, and T'Pau became T'Pol, a new character. The same thing had happened with the character of Tom Paris in Voyager, substituting for Nick Locarno as he had been in Star Trek The Next Generation, but it was even more egregious here as he was played by the same actor. With the idea firmly in place that adhering to Trek canon wasn't as important as milking the cash cow for more moo juice, what we received, rather than an established part of Trek lore, was a new ship and crew that were apparently incredibly important to the Federation and Trek history, but not important enough to have ever been mentioned before. After all, Kirk's Enterprise didn't have a shot of a Starship Enterprise in his briefing room, neither did Picard's. To be fair, I don't know that I'd have done anything differently. After all, creating a TV show comes with a healthy paycheck. There was a small glimmer of hope when Scott Bakula was cast in the lead role of Captain Jonathan Archer. Bakula is a long-time favourite due to his role on Quantum Leap, and he was a good actor and a solid leading man. The rest of the cast were, like many of the Trek shows, largely unknowns. The only other member of the Enterprise cast I knew was Dominic Keating, who'd been in the British sitcom Desmond's before cropping up in an episode of Buffy. As with all Trek shows, I gave the pilot a chance and was moderately impressed. However, during the first season, I started to lose interest. Episodes seemed samey. There wasn't a lot of character on display, and worst of all, the episodes were boring. I dropped off watching halfway through season one, and although I checked out the odd episode in season two, I felt the show was a misfire. Apparently I wasn't alone, and Enterprise limped through four seasons, barely, before being cancelled, and I barely noticed. This is perhaps the most damning of all. A seasoned Trek fan like me neither knew nor could that Enterprise was still on the air. 
In this Trek's 50th year, though, I started to get a hankering for more Trek. I was pleasantly surprised by Star Trek Beyond, the most enjoyable cinematic Star Trek adventure since the undiscovered country some 25 years ago. And with Netflix adding every episode of Trek to its service, I started watching old episodes. I played it safe at first, rescreening classics from the original show and The Next Generation, but curiosity started to get the better of me, and I started wondering about the other shows, particularly Enterprise. Now, whilst this binge-watching thing is the new fad, I think that in certain cases, and with certain shows, it can hurt the viewing experience. When a show creates 22 episodes a year, shows that aren't creating a complete narrative can make binge-watching a chore. Plus, as with a lot of people in the 21st century, my time is precious. I can't be asked watching a show that only gets good in its third year. It's nearly 40 hours of my life watching something that's considered to be a bit shit. It was that kind of time. So I hit the internet and googled about seven different lists that gave the best episodes of the show. I made a note of which episodes appeared on which lists, and quickly realised the consensus was to watch the show regularly from season three onwards. When even Trentus Magnus of this here parish also suggested that season three would be worth watching in its entirety, my course was set. Starting out, I watched the series pilot, Broken Bow, and then the episodes The Andorian Incident, Dear Doctor, Shuttlepod 1, Acquisition, and Shockwave. It says a lot about the first season, which was 26 episodes, that it can be boiled down to six shows. There may have been other good episodes in the first season, but these were the ones on the most lists, and as I've said, time was a factor. Also, as I watched a lot of season one when it erred, my memory of it was not favourable. The pilot kicks off the series perfectly acceptably. It certainly looked expensive, as you would expect from a show that cost $12 million. There are lovely beauty passes of the Enterprise, and it does a decent job of introducing the characters. There's immediately some retconning of the original show, again with the inclusion of the Zephyr and Cochrane that appeared in the movie First Contact, rather than 1967's Metamorphosis, and the Klingons have head ridges, which as an original series fan irks me. But there were many interesting elements to the pilot. Characters are all introduced well, although the Vulcans are portrayed as complete bastards, more interested in holding Starfleet back than in aiding humanity in their exploration of space. This will be a major subplot throughout the series and actually has a really decent payoff in the fourth season. If this arc was planned from the beginning, which I doubt, then I doff my cap to producers and writers alike. As with all Trek shows, the cast are all important. A Star Trek show lives and breathes with its captain. If you don't like the captain as a character or an actor, then the show falls flat. This was a major part of my issue with Voyager. I found Kate Mulgrew far too mannered and irritating. A different actor in the role, Trisha O'Neill for example, who played Captain Rachel Garrett on the next-gen episode yesterday's Enterprise, may have seen me warm to that series a little more. Anyway, Bacula, to his credit, is not Sam Beckett in this show. He's a lot stiffer, a lot harder, and borderline unlikable. Over the run of the series, I actually grew to like that Archer wasn't best pals with all of his crew and frequently acted like a commanding officer and not a chum. The rest of the crew are a mixed bag. Julian Blaylock is to Paul, who seems to be employed on her ability to look good in a slinky one-piece. The series does her two disservices from the jump. One, it gives her the silly Spock bowl cut when female Vulcans were shown in the original series to favour Long more flattering her. And two, it squeezes her into skin-tight suits and then makes every effort to get her out of them. As the series progresses, we will see T'Pol in a standard uniform and with Long hair, and in both cases she looks a lot better and, more importantly, the actress looks a lot more comfortable. Anthony Montgomery as Travis Mayweather is never giving anything to do in the pilot and it will remain thus throughout the series. 
Now I finished the run, I find he made such a small impression on me that I barely remembered he was part of the show. The aforementioned Dominic Keating plays his character Malcolm Reed as somebody with a massive rod up his arse, and he doesn't develop a great deal either. Other than Bacula, only Connor Trinier as Charles Tripp Tucker and Linda Park as Hoshi Sato make any impression. Broken Bow isn't Star Trek at its finest, but it does manage to imbue space travel with some sense of danger again, and kicks the series off, if not at warp speed, then at least not stuck in impulse. Happily, most of the season one episodes picked were enjoyable and interesting. The Andorian incident introduces us to long-time Trek guest actor Jeffrey Coombs as Shran, an Andorian, and gives us the political situation of the Enterprise galaxy as it will be moving forward. Andorians don't like Vulcans, Vulcans aren't too impressed with Tellarites. Andorians don't like Tellarites much either, and they're not too fond of Vulcans. Archer convinces Shran that humans aren't all bad. Archer also manages to convince the Tellarites and the Vulcans that humans aren't as bad as they seem over the course of the show, and this will give an explanation for why Earth is the centre of the UFP. We're considered slightly more tolerable than everyone else, or at least not quite as objectionable. Coombs is pretty good at Shran successfully inhabiting another Star Trek alien, as he did in two different roles in Deep Space Nine, and differentiating between all of them in subtle ways. Over the series, he and Archer will develop a nice relationship. Dear Doctor focused on Dr. Phlox, played by John Billingsley, a charming character and one of the more likeable on the show. Phlox has an innate desire to learn, which is why he's on Enterprise, but he's also developed well over the series' run. Shuttlepod 1 takes that old standby of all cash-strapped TV shows. Take two actors and dump them in one set together. This one works exceptionally well. Trip and Reed are trapped in a shuttle with no fuel, no food and precious little air. Enterprise isn't scheduled to pick them up for four days, by which time they will likely be pretty dead. This episode's a character piece and almost succeeds in making Reed likeable. We learn he's from a long line of naval officers and he has inferiority problems. Trip also gets to shine, with Connor Trinia's charming southern drawl and optimistic outlook the perfect counterpart to Reed's pessimism. Acquisition features the Ferengi. Now, I know what you're thinking. And you're right. How can we meet the Ferengi in Enterprise when we know the first official meeting with them won't be until the first season of The Next Generation? Well, Enterprise did this quite a bit. It had a habit of bringing in concepts we know won't properly be discovered until Kirk or Picard's time and playing around with them in such a way as to try and not negate previously established continuity. Mostly this was gimmicky. The Borg, anyone? But sometimes, as here, it was handled quite well. The crew don't actually learn the name of the race, and whilst I'm clearly making this sound rubbish, it's actually a fun episode. And for the ladies, and for some men, I'm sure, Tripp spends the entire show in his underwear. Shockwave with the season finale, and featured some more shenanigans with the yawn-inducing temporal time war. The advantage of cherry-picking episodes is I was largely spurred this, as I do remember it being one of the reasons I checked out initially. The Temporal Time War story never really caught fire for me, and having seen the resolution, I'm still not entirely sure I actually understand any of it. That said, the episode has its moments, and by this point, the crew and the actors seem to have gelled into a pretty good ensemble, with Blaylock especially having grown as an actor, and her chemistry with Trinier is palpable. With this acting as a cliffhanger, things still looked rosy for Enterprise. It had polarised the fan base, but it was still pulling in nearly 6 million viewers, half the audience that watched the pilot, but still solid. 
So season two continued on the path of the first season, standalone episodes that occasionally brushed up against the temporal Cold War arc. With the recurring subplot a non-starter, episodes that seemed to be more interesting in season two were the ones that focused on the political situation of the galaxy, the antipathy between the Tellarites, Andorians, Vulcans, etc., and humanity's place in space. Archer was frequently left wondering how these people had managed to get into space when they couldn't even get on with their next-door neighbours. The shows that scored highly in the lists, and thus the ones I watched, were Shockwave Part 2, Carbon Creek, Minefield, Dead Stop, Singularity, Ceasefire, Future Tense, Cogenitor, First Flight, and the season finale, The Expanse. One element of Enterprise I haven't addressed yet is the action quotient. Being on a network, like the original show, Enterprise had to deal with some network notes and proving that very little has changed since the 60s. The network wanted more action than perhaps the syndicated series it had. Personally, I don't really have an issue with this. Star Trek has always had a high-octane feel to some of the episodes. Roddenberry himself acknowledged, perhaps sarcastically, that the original pilot The Cage would have sold if he'd concluded it with a fistfight. The action scenes in Enterprise are all well realised, with some pretty good stunt work and the requisite amount of sparks flying. The CG on the show is also pretty good in the space battle scenes, although some of the planet effects now look like cutscenes in PlayStation 2 games. Shockwave 2 benefits from these effects and stunt work immeasurably, being a fast-paced and action-filled start to the season. Far more interesting, though, is to Paul's character arc, where, after a year in space, she started to value humanity and opposes the Vulcan High Command in supporting Enterprise's mission. The Vulcan arc over the totality of the series is actually interesting, but I can see why viewers watching it as it heard would be annoyed by it. One of the best episodes of the series run was episode 2 of season 2, Carbon Creek. Taking the form of a story told by T'Pol to Archer and Trip, Carbon Creek sees T'Pol reveal that Vulcans actually made contact with humans in 1957, when a three-man ship crashed and the Vulcan scientists aboard were forced to adapt into the culture whilst waiting for rescue. This episode is pretty much Star Trek at its best, a story about humanity and being human told through the eyes of aliens. Performances are great across the board, and Jolene Blaylock especially has grown into her role and as an actress generally. I wanted to see a spin-off series about the Vulcan who's left behind at this episode, maybe having him wandering from town to town every episode, solving various mysteries with his great Vulcan strength and staying one step ahead of a nosy investigative reporter. Maybe it's just me that wanted that spin-off, though. Minefield and Dead Stop are unusual and they carry over without actually being a two-part episode. Enterprise is damaged in the former and is repaired in the latter at a magic space station that fixes the ship in exchange for payment. A good show for establishing that the ship does occasionally need repairing and that Trip doesn't always have the tools to hand, these four episodes opened the second season very well. Singularity was fun, if throwaway, and Ceasefire gets back to the strained relationships between the Andorians, Tellarites and Vulcans. Cogenitor and First Flight, though, are far more interesting. Cogenitor seems to be regarded as one of Enterprise's finest episodes, featuring Trip fighting on behalf of an alien considered a second-class citizen by its people. As with the Tenktonese in Alien Nation, the Vissians, this episode's alien race du jour, need three people to procreate, and Trip takes it upon himself to educate the third person in the Triangle after learning that under Vissian culture it has no rights, no privileges, or even a name. A fine episode for exploring the delicate nature of communication, diplomacy, 
and women's rights when it comes to burying children. This also sets up why Starfleet has a prime directive in the future. Whilst it's undeniably well written and the character drama is well played, we've kind of seen this explored before with Data, and there's no denying that Trip is a bit of a jerk in this script, clearly doing something he knows to be wrong. First Flight, though, is far more up my alley, a Star Trek take on the right stuff in which Archer tells to Paul how the first warp engine was tested. One of the things Enterprise tried to do, and succeeded in the upcoming third season, was getting back to the idea of space travel being dangerous and unpredictable, with only the right kind of person capable of doing it. Archer has been growing as a character over the first two years quite nicely, even if he does sometimes come across as rather pissy and short-tempered, and this was one of the first times I think the show really demonstrated his grit and determination in following a dream that isn't even his. Keith Carradine gives a good turn as Archer's rival for the testing programme, and although there's a rather silly and childish fight in the middle, this is still a top-notch episode, and more what I would expect from a Star Trek prequel show. The season finale, The Expanse, is really the first episode of season three, setting up plot points that will take a full year to resolve. An alien race known only as the Zindi launch a devastating attack on Earth, wiping out seven million people. Thanks to the machinations of tedious future guy from the temporal time war arc, Starfleet learns the truth and dispatches Archer to a remote region containing the Delphic Expanse. Out here, the Enterprise will be alone and unable to communicate with Starfleet, but the survival of the human race rests on the hull plating. Season 3 is where Enterprise takes a quantum leap forward in terms of quality. At 24 episodes, reduced from 26 due to falling ratings, it's still too long. But when a 24-episode season only contains two outright stinkers, that's pretty impressive. Even the first season of the original had the alternative factor. Extinction and Hatchery are the two episodes stinking out the spacesuit, just in case you were interested. Both have ideas that Trek has done before, and both take these ideas and do them badly. Other than these, almost all the episodes this year add to the overall story arc, and almost all are worth your time. We've never really seen this kind of Star Trek before, and that alone makes it worth the time to watch. It's one of the rare examples of Star Trek doing binge-watching that works on that basis. The characters are fleshed out particularly well this year, except Mayweather, who is still as well-defined as an eraser. Archer, in particular, has a number of hard choices to make without any backup from Starfleet or interference from the Vulcan High Command, and Bacula delivers probably his best performance on the show in this season. He's hard-nosed and in-your-face when he needs to be, and feels like a genuine commanding officer rather than the diplomat Picard was or the best mate that Kirk sometimes came across as being. The decisions he makes this year weigh on him and last all season, only culminating in next season's home. Trip and T'Pol also start to develop a relationship, and all kudos to Blaylock and Trinia, who successfully develop a wonderful on-screen chemistry that also carries over into Season 4. They're probably the sexiest couple in Star Trek history, and easily the most adorable. I'm not a shipper by any stretch of the imagination, but I wanted T'Pol and Trip to get together more than any TV couple since Pam and Jim. Still, the Zindi arc has its problems. Whilst it holds together fine in bulk like this, there's no denying that the first two-thirds of the season are padded, and I think this would have benefited immensely from being a 16-episode season. It's to the producers' credit that there aren't as many bad episodes as there could have been, but Exile, Carpenter Street and North Star could all have easily been dropped. 
Even here, though, Exile features some nice character work from Linda Park, who's finally rewarded with a solo episode to show her talents, and none of the others are bad, just rather inconsequential. This was also the season that got back to discussing issues, with Similitude tackling the thorny issue of cloning, and Chosen Realm looking at religious extremism. Neither go quite far enough for me, with the latter in particular botching its ending, but all credit to the show for at least attempting to tell this kind of story. Also, by the end of the season, the reason we're given for the Zindi attack on Earth at the end of season two is quite silly. It's finally established that the initial attack on Earth was a weapons test, with a further attack to follow. But if the Zindi hadn't done this attack and waited until the weapon was ready, they could have wiped out Earth without us being able to do anything about it. The final third of the season, though, is kicked off in fine fettle with Azati Prime, a stronger episode of Star Trek in any of its incarnations. The pieces that have been moving around all season finally settle into place, and Enterprise is given a clear goal to bring about an end to the Zindi conflict. With Archer learning that the Zindi have been manipulating the council that ordered the attack on Earth, and his knowledge of a future attack that will destroy the planet, the stakes are now higher than ever before, but also have a definitive endgame. The action is again well orchestrated, and the Enterprise takes a massive pounding in the final sequence, giving us the single best Star Trek cliffhanger since the best of both worlds on Next Generation. That the ship spends the rest of this season being held together by Tripp's ingenuity and some bubblegum shows how desperate the situation has become, and Azati Prime is easily a five-star episode. Unfortunately, I can't really recommend this to a viewer who's never watched Enterprise, as you really do need the entire backstory from the season to fully understand what's going on. Unlike The Best of Both Worlds, and pretty much every Star Trek two-parter, the next episode, Damage, follows up on the promise of Zerti Prime. This is as bleak as Star Trek has ever got. The Enterprise is in tatters, the crew bloodied and beaten, and Archer is forced into a situation where he has to do something pretty reprehensible to save his crew and, by extension, the planet Earth. Star Trek hasn't so convincingly depicted the hard command decisions of a captain since Deep Space Nine, and even more impressively, this isn't hand-waved away. Archer will still be dealing with this next season. This three-part arc within an arc concludes with The Forgotten, another blinder in which Archer and crew convince a member of the Inner Council to finally listen to their evidence. It's a turning point for the season and the arc, and handled very well by the writers and actors. These three episodes have been some of Enterprise's strongest episodes, with excellent production values, fine writing and exemplary acting from all concerned, particularly Blaylock, Bakula and Trinia, who have easily become this series Kirk, Spock and McCoy. The next episode, E Squared, is easily ignored, and then we're on to the home stretch to the finale with another three cracking episodes. The Council, Countdown and Zero Hour wrap up the season in fine style, wrapping up the loose ends satisfactorily, if not wholly. The only misstep is ending the season on a cliffhanger. Archer is missing, presumed dead, only to wake up in an alternate Earth where aliens have helped the Nazis win World War II. Whilst this is a fun idea in its own right, it just came across as dopey at the end of a season like this, and did have me literally yell, oh for fuck's sake, at the television. Overall, this third season was a marked improvement over the earlier episodes, although I needed the earlier episodes to appreciate the crew. The writing and characterization was of higher quality this year, and the production values were still high. 
Sadly, the show's declining fortunes meant that a fourth season was only green-lit if the producers agreed on a reduced budget, and season four was produced for $800,000 per episode, instead of the $1.5 million per show the previous seasons were allotted. However, Trek has always proved that it does better on a reduced budget, and season four contains some of the best stories of the series' run. With executive producers Bran and Braga and Rick Berman stepping aside, Manny Cotto, a self-confessed original Trek fan, took over, and along with noted Trek novelists Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens, they started embracing the connections and the continuity of the original series, instead of mostly ignoring it like Berman and Braga did. The season kicks off with the fun romp set in World War II, words that don't really seem to go together. This episode seems largely ignored by most fans, but I quite enjoyed it. It also managed to get rid of the tedious temporal Cold War stuff, for which it has my eternal gratitude. Next, Home saw Archer reflect upon his actions in The Expanse and come to terms with the many compromises he had to make there. The writers also start to make the Vulcans more sympathetic, something that will pay off in a few episodes' time. Home does what Family did on Next Generation, in that it gives the characters some downtime and allows the Enterprise a few months of refit time after being pretty much destroyed at the end of last season. It also lets us see Archer's point of view. He made many decisions that I, as a viewer, found questionable throughout season three, and sometimes he even managed to seem a little bit unhinged. But in this episode, we learn that he found many of his decisions hard, and he looks back on some of them with disdain. Archer has been a slow burn, reminding me more of Commander Sinclair on Babylon 5 than previous Star Trek commanders, but over the course of the run, he developed quite admirably. Brent Spiner shows up for a ratings-grabbing three-parter next as Dr. Adik Soong, with a lot of fun callbacks to Wrath of Khan, even if there are times where it seems a little too referential. Soong has allied himself with a group of augments, genetically enhanced super being similar to Khan. It starts and builds well, but suffers from a poor finale. A three-part episode concerning the bombing of a Vulcan embassy wraps up this really rather good start to the season. Season 4 felt more like Star Trek than any others so far. T'Pol starts making sardonic jokes. She and Trip ooze more sexual tension than Maddie and David on a good day, and Archer has lightened up a bit. The show is still tackling issues, though, with cases of xenophobia on Earth after the Zindi attack at an all-time high. Enemies using terrorism to achieve goals despite pretending to be friends, and the dangers inherent in messing around with evolution. It's not all great. Daedalus remakes the ultimate computer. Bound is stupid fun, but is also a remake of Mud's Women, and Observer Effect relies a little bit too much on knowing who the Organians are from Errand of Mercy. The show hasn't quite managed to navigate the delicate balance between being a true prequel of the original and continuity porn, but it is getting there. The three-parter in the middle of the season, where Enterprise brings about a fragile peace between the Tellarites and the Andorians, not only wraps up subplots from earlier, but signposts the beginning of the United Federation of Planets. However, the best is yet to come. The final five episodes of the show following the cancellation notice just go for it. In a Mirror Darkly is one of Star Trek's wonderful off-formula shows, similar to Far Beyond the Stars on DS9 and Inner Light on Next Generation, but may actually be better than both. Set in the Mirror Universe, this episode makes absolutely no concessions to its audience, making them work it all out, as the characters do, that this is Enterprise if we, as viewers, lived in that Mirror Universe. 
By avoiding the same old, same old drama of the standard Mirror Universe stories, How Do Our Heroes Get Back?, it's able to concentrate on telling a proper Mirror Universe story, and manages to be a sequel to both the original Mirror Mirror and the Tholian Web from the original series. They even change the opening titles and the theme. Here it is. The amazing thing about Inner Mirror Darkly is it immediately puts lie to the idea that the original series designs and costumes are dated. In a convoluted plot that I won't ruin, Archer and his crew end up on the USS Defiant from Kirk's era and have to wear costumes from that ship. And they look glorious. Archer's tall frame suits the green wraparound tunic and T'Pol looks very fetching in her original series era miniskirt. The bridge and classic lines of the Constitution-class starship stack up favourably to the more modern Enterprise, and arguably these sleek lines of the original design look more futuristic and classy than the overly detailed, more up-to-date starships. The actors are allowed to really go for it in a manner more out there than the sedate trappings of more modern Trek, with Bacula in particular hamming it up magnificently. It's Linda Park as Hoshi Sato, though, who comes very close to stealing the show as a sexy and manipulative Hoshi. Gary Graham's Vulcan diplomat Saval also sports a Spock goatee-like beard in a nod to the original Mirror Mirror. Crucially, the story is also up to snuff, with backstabbings, treachery and murder being the order of the day. I could have spent an entire episode on just these two shows, and if you've never seen them, I urge you to check them out. They don't spoil any other episode of Enterprise for you, and are easily worth the time. The final two episodes of the series proper follow. A humans-only group called Terra Prime have infiltrated a conference on Earth to discuss the formation of the UFP, and these bigots and racists want all alien life kicked off Earth as soon as they can, or they'll blow up Starfleet Command. More prescient than ever, Demons and Terra Prime aren't entirely successful, but they do manage to raise Trekian-type questions about tolerance and understanding. Terra Prime's leader, played with oodles of charm and rancor by Peter Weller, is a hypocrite and a xenophobe, but he does point out that it only takes one man with a platform to expose the inherent and underlying problems in human nature. The Andorian ambassador probably has the best line in the show. Earthmen, he says talk about uniting worlds, but your own planet is deeply divided. Perhaps you're not ready to host this conference. 
The episode then gets more concerned with the clock-ticking drama of stopping Weller at the expense of answering the questions that it raises. But that it raises the questions at all is noble. Star Trek's at its best when it's showing us the way rather than pontificating on what makes humanity great. But these were a typically Trekkian way to conclude the show. Archer's speech at the end, whilst not as good as some of Kirk's, sums up the show and themes very well. Up until about 100 years ago, there was one question that burned in every human that made us study the stars and dream of traveling to them. Are we alone? Our generation is privileged to know the answer to that question. We are all explorers driven to know what's over the horizon. What's beyond our own shores? Yet, the more I've experienced, the more I've learned that no matter how far we travel or how fast we get there, the most profound discoveries are not necessarily beyond that next star. They're within us, woven into the threads that bind us, all of us, to each other. The final frontier begins in this hole. Final episode of Enterprise and the final episode of television Trek for over 18 years and 25 seasons was These Are the Voyages. I was warned about this episode by people online. It was terrible, they all said. A betrayal is the way I saw it most described. So as I settled in to watch with no small amount of trepidation, I saw a show that really wasn't as awful as everyone said. Sure, it's a terrible last episode of Enterprise, but it's not a terrible episode. I think Trentus Magnus, him again, got it right when he said that the creators saw this as an opportunity to put a bow around 18 years of the TV that they had worked on, but the audience wanted a final episode of Enterprise. This is an episode of The Next Generation, and not a very good one. Set during the seventh season of the next-gen episode The Pegasus, for reasons I really didn't understand, Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis reprised their roles as Riker and Troy, both looking very different than they did in that episode. The plot sees Commander Riker watch a holodeck recreation of Archer's last journey to help Riker make a decision. This is a massive miscalculation of audience's expectations, reducing the main characters to guest stars in their own show and bringing in two people who mean nothing to this show. There's a real possibility that people watching Enterprise wouldn't have been around for the next generation and thus have no idea who Riker and Troy are. The script makes no effort to explain this or their importance. It's all a bit nudge nudge wink wink. 
We don't even get to see Archer's final speech. As a season ender, it probably wouldn't have been that bad. As a series finale, it's pretty much an abomination. Ultimately, I think Enterprise suffered from the same thing that this summer's Star Trek Beyond suffered from. The show slash film that immediately preceded it wasn't very good, and this series film was tarred with the same brush. Which is a shame, as both Enterprise and Star Trek Beyond deserve better. Season 4 in particular gets a lot of love from fans, and it is good. But Season 3 is better. It's darker, more daring, different. And I think Star Trek had to be different in the 21st century than it was in the 20th. It had to grow to survive. Whilst there's nothing wrong with its optimistic view of humanity, it does need to change a little to truly evolve. In the early to mid-2000s, the reimagined Battlestar Galactica and Doctor Who demonstrated how you can take an old property and bring it up to date. Now, I'm not saying that Trek should be as disturbing as Galactica, but it does need to adapt. Star Trek Beyond was a step in the right direction, being very much a more modern take on Star Trek, and demonstrating there is still life in Trek. Its relatively poor performance at the box office, despite being a better film in and of itself than either Suicide Squad or Batman vs Superman, was unfortunate. But with a fourth film in the rebooted timeline that will hopefully be as good, if not better, than Star Trek Beyond on the way, and a new series just on the horizon, I am hopeful that we will continue to boldly go. Humanity needs a little dose of optimism every now and again. Although I'm going to have to say I've changed my mind about Enterprise. Whilst I'm still firmly of the opinion that there is the original Star Trek and then everything else, Enterprise had some good ideas that were executed reasonably well. Yes, whilst the original series fan in me balked any time they did anything first, when we know Kirk did it originally, Enterprise still has moments where it touched upon greatness. The cast had all settled in and it seemed that the show found its feet in the third and fourth seasons, only to have those feet lopped off at the ankles, which was a shame. I think the next season, which was rumoured to have been the Romulan War, as mentioned in the original series episode Balance of Terror, could have been a cracker. Ultimately, Enterprise seems to be the forgotten Star Trek show. Over here, some of that stems from the fact that Channel 4 bought it instead of the BBC and then buried it on Sunday afternoons. In the States, it just seems that it was largely ignored, ending its run with a little over 2 million viewers. There were a few books released after the series wrapped up, carrying on the show's story and undoing some of the problems with the finale, and then moving on into the formation of the Federation and the aforementioned Romulan War, but I do think that this series is well overdue a reappraisal. It isn't perfect, and I did miss the design aesthetic of the original show, but I'm glad this show came to Netflix, and I'm glad I gave it a chance. And that about wraps it up for this episode of the... the what?
the theme. I, I, I always I always talk about the, the theme on, on these things. Yeah, that's that's true. I, I do always talk about the theme music on uh, on on shows like this, don't I? <sighs> okay. One of the more controversial elements of Enterprise was that it used a theme song with the emphasis on song rather than the more traditional Trek staple of an orchestral score. Only the original series prior to this had had a theme with lyrics and only then because Roddenberry wanted to do Alexander Courage out of some money. I get why the producers wanted to do this. They wanted the show to be different and stand alone and they didn't even call the show Star Trek for two seasons, but... <sighs> and there isn't actually anything wrong with Where My Heart Will Take Me as a song in and of itself. Lyrically, it does sum up the themes of Enterprise, but... It's just a bit wishy-washy. It's got no oomph. Just kind of sits there like a fat pet. Yeah, but, you know, lovely listener, you asked for it. Don't blame me if this is stuck in your head for the rest of the day. It's been a long road Getting from there to here It's been a long time But my time enjoyed that uh, let's do some emails our first email is from chris and cindy franklin concerning the supergirl episode i did flashing supergirl it sounds a bit rude christopher I don't think you should be flashing supergirl hello andy hello christopher great coverage of the supergirl flash crossover i don't really have much to add that you haven't already said suffice it to say i had a big stupid grin on my face throughout the whole episode an hour spent with charming actors having fun playing in a version of my favorite fictional universe not a bad way to spend an evening. My only minor gripe is that Barry's side trip to Kara's dimension, Earth-S, was never referenced on the Flash. With all the reality hopping Barry and the crew did in Series 2, you'd have thought they'd have dropped at least one line about his super detour. Take her, Chris. Um, maybe it was a right tissue. Entirely possible that they weren't allowed to. But it did seem a bit... I mean, she did get an appearance in the show when he was doing that crossing over thing. We did see Supergirl, so that was quite neat. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for emailing in, as usual. Luke Giaconetti's emailed in also about the Supergirl show. You're super, Supergirl. Andy! Luke! Supergirl is an odd show for me, says Luke. On the one hand, it's a live-action Supergirl series. Melissa Benoist is fantastic as both Kara and Supergirl. The Martian Manhunter is there. Personal favourite former network TV Poison and sister of the Power Rangers in Space Red Ranger, Sila Lee is there. Livewire, Silver Banshee, The Toy Man, Reactron, what's not to like? But then there's the writing. 
Where characters careen from one persona to another, sometimes week to week. There's a whole lot of recycled Superman stories shoehorned in here because Supergirl lacks the memorable stories and rogues to populate a TV series. The dialogue tries hard to be meta and Tumblr screen cap and caption friendly, so it rings hollow to my going on old man ears. The whole idea of Jimmy Olsen, coolest guy in the room, is a disaster. To mention the shifting sands of I like you, now I don't, but I do in secret soap opera silliness which dominates the character relationships. The same silliness which rabid supporters of this show ignore, but continue to use as ammunition against Smallville, which pound for pound, season one versus season one, to me, is still the better show. See, I, I don't. I think I raised all of those those criticisms that Luke just mentioned there in the show, but ultimately this does come back down to that old thing that if you're actually enjoying something, you'll ignore some of the problems. And I've got to be honest, for the most part, season one of Supergirl was one of the most fun hours of television I think I've watched in a long time. So I was willing to cut it a slack on on certain things. Luke continues. So in the end, it's a mixed bag. Well, fun whilst I'm watching it, but somewhat empty calories. The Flash crossover episode epitomises this feeling for me. It's as entertaining in the moment, but there's not a lot of meat on the bones here, much like Cat. Still, I cannot deny that the fanboy and me dug the heck out of seeing the two heroes from different networks and different universes team up to fight a pair of supervillains. This truly is a nerd nirvana that we live in, and Grant Gustin is always a charmer as Barry Allen, whether on his own show or in a guest spot. I do want to mention that your mileage may vary when it comes to the wonderful Callista Flockhart, whose grating, obnoxious cat grant is equal parts Meryl Streep from The Devil Wears Prada, Light, and Miss Flockhart playing herself. She's not a very appealing character to me. I do have to admit the joke about her turning down a date with Harrison Ford was downright hilarious, though. That was a good line in a later episode about telling Harrison Ford she doesn't date older men. Um, see, I, I would agree with you entirely uh, about the first episode what we thought about Cat Grant. I came away from the first episode being like, yeah, I hope she's gone from the series. But over the series, I actually really warmed to her. And I think a lot of that was the writing. I think that they did try to develop Cat so she wasn't just two-dimensional and uninteresting. But I, I think Flockhart grew into the role. I mean, I'm still not entirely convinced she hasn't had some Botox done on that upper forehead because it's it's suspiciously line-free. And that top lip looked like it's had a, a bit of a, a duck pout injection to it. But for the most part, I've got to be honest, Luke, I, I actually really enjoyed her in that show. And this is coming from someone who was not the biggest fan of Ali McBeal. Luke continues, It remains frustrating to me that Constantine was cancelled, but Supergirl continues to be buffeted, despite iffy ratings and uneven writing. I don't mind shows which get by on the likability of the cast, but I still like Constantine quite a bit more. Supergirl is in many ways the girl power version of The Flash, but Constantine was its own animal, which probably what doomed it, but that's neither here nor there. And that being said, I watched all of season one of Supergirl and will watch season two, so I'm still voting with my eyeballs and theoretical purse string. It's a fun show, but to me, wholly disposable. Much like a lot of comics. But Luke, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with just having something on that is fun for an hour and then you don't have to watch it again or you don't have to think about it? Just something that entertains you for the hour it's on. I mean, when, when I was growing up, I'm a bit older than you, but when I was growing up, TV was full of shows like that. You know, Night Riders, not exactly deep. But it was fun for the hour that you were watching it, and then you went away and got on with your life, and it was nice little distraction from whatever was going on, and that to me was Supergirl. Plus, it was something that Anya really enjoyed, so we got to watch that together, so that was fun. She was a big fan of uh, Sila Lee as well. She liked Alex. Sometimes I think she liked Alex more than Supergirl. 
Anyway, concludes Luke, a fun episode recapping a fun episode, albeit one which had to consort itself into knots. But then again, most superhero team-ups do the same thing, so no big deal, right? With six, you get an egg roll, Luke. Uh, (laughs) I have no idea what that means. Uh, Luke concludes, P.S. Finally saw Batman v Superman. Watch the extended edition, and all I can say is, yeah, that was absolutely worth the wait. We may be on opposite sides of this particular film, Mr. L, but that's cool. I'll still split my aforementioned reg rule. Egg rule, sorry, with you if I can get one of your fried dumplings. We can diverge on opinions about things and still be cool enough to hit the early bird special at the palace. PPS, and now I want Chinese food. <laughs> yeah, if you enjoyed Batman vs. Superman, more power to you. Um, I'll be honest with you. I, I'm Having watched the extended cut, I'm a big ball of meh. With regards to it, I just I just didn't find it interesting, and there were places I just found it very very dull. But c'est la vie, I believe uh, the French say. Thanks for emailing in, Luke. As usual, very interesting thoughts. Uh, finally, Michael Ridge has emailed in. Hello, Andy. I heard you twice this weekend, once as a guest on Stella's Batgirl to Oracle podcast, and once on the Palace of Glittering Delights. You are becoming as ubiquitous as the irredeemable shag. Oh, God, I hope not. He gets everywhere, that guy, doesn't he? I enjoyed your take on Batgirl as an older woman who has a more reasonable interest in Bruce and looks at Grayson as a possibility if he were just a little older. I'm a reader who followed Detective in the 70s and 80s and thought of Batgirl as about five years younger than Batman. I'm glad you're the old guy who can help Stella see how things were before the end of the multiverse. And there I was on uh, Batgirl to Oracle with the lovely Stella Moose Bowman. Uh, It was a brilliant chat all about Batman contagion or legacy. Legacy, I think, yeah. I get those two mixed up in my head. But it was fun, and you should go and listen to it, because she was uh, a lovely, lovely person. Really nice. Um, Michael concludes, Supergirl has pierced ears because she got it done before she got in the rocket. I know you enjoy fanboy nitpicking from the Hey Kids Comics podcast, but let's not encourage looking for some complicated method that might involve the use of two heat vision beams focused through a laser or use of the kryptonite training chamber when the answer can be simple. Uh, I totally agree that I was just having a bit of fun there. I'm not really bothered about how Supergirl got her ears pierced. Just like I'm not really bothered about how she's got a chicken pox scare. She must have got it in the Phantom Zone. Thanks for all the work you do to make my weekends less boring, Michael Ridge. Well, you're very welcome, Michael. Thank you for listening and thank you for emailing in. It was very much appreciated. That about wraps up this one, which was uh, an episode all about Enterprise, which I hope you go and check out on this, the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. As usual, I have no idea what's coming up next. Couple of balls in the air, but we'll see what happens. If you're a long-time listener of Two True Freaks, why not use the Amazon link on the webpage to go and buy stuff? Maybe go and buy some Enterprise if you've not got Netflix. Uh, It costs you nothing. We get a a tip from that. Uh, And that's interesting because it keeps us being able to do shows like this. This is a Two True Freaks presentation. Hope you enjoyed it. And I'll be back next time.